Hear now the word of God. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask him to do that. We thank you, O God, for this text this morning, that you've revealed yourself in your word and that you also show yourself to us in the Lord's Supper. As we anticipate this table which has been set by you, would you open our ears and our hearts to hear the truth about you and about the bread and about the cup which you've established as a means to bless your people? Would you help us? In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I am guilty of abusing words. Uh, I don't know if you are guilty of this. I suspect you probably are. But, uh, you know, oftentimes we take words that we know and we use them to exaggerate things. Uh, One of the biggest uh, offenders, I think, around us today is the word love. We use the word love for all sorts of things that do not fit any sort of traditional definition of love. I love coffee. I love reading. Uh, I love this food, right? But if you really thought about it, you would have to admit that you just really enjoy this thing. Uh, You really like this thing, but there is no traditional definition of love that this uh, enjoyment of coffee would fit, even if it is a very strong liking. Uh, Another word that we tend to misuse is the word need. Uh, I really am guilty of this. Um, I have different hobbies. I have uh, things that I enjoy uh, outside of the pulpit. I don't know if you know that about me, but um, I, I don't just do this. And, uh, and one of my enjoyments, one of my hobbies, I love to play video games. And I will frequently have this conversation with my wife, and I'll say, Honey, I need this new game. I need it. And then she will look back at me without even missing a beat and say, No. <laughs> That is definitely a want. That is not a need. You need to stop abusing that word, that word need. Now, we can misuse a word one way, but maybe is it possible that maybe we lose sight of what our needs are? And we actually think that we want things that we actually do need. Is it possible for us to commit the opposite error? I think we do this as Christians. I think we do this with various things in the Christian life, and especially today I want to draw your attention to the Lord's Supper because we think of the Lord's Supper as a want. We think of the Lord's Supper as something that is helpful to us, but how often do we actually consider that the Lord's Supper is not a want? It is, and it should be, a need. Because Jesus, this morning in this passage, does something, and one of the things I want you to notice is that just like we need food, And just like we need drink to stay alive, 
Jesus is showing the disciples and he's showing us that he gives us the spiritual equivalent of food and drink. I don't know how long you think you can survive without food and drink, but it's not forever. And Jesus says the same thing about himself. You have spiritual needs that are just as real, just as legitimate, just as important as your physical needs. You really do. And it is easy for us to look at the Lord's Supper and think of it as a want. Think of it as something that we enjoy, something that we appreciate and that we like to observe. But I want to persuade you this morning that the Lord's Supper actually is more than just a want. That it really is a need. But for us to see that, we need to know what it is. And so this morning, as we look at this text, I want you to see three things about the Lord's Supper. In just a few words here, Jesus shows his disciples and he shows us that the supper is symbolic, the supper is real, and the supper is necessary. And my hope is that by the time we are finished looking at this passage, that the Lord's Supper will move up in your priorities from just being a want to ultimately seeing it as a need. The first thing Jesus shows us in this passage is that this is a symbolic meal. It's a symbolic meal. In other words, it is a thing that points to another thing. And in the case of the supper, look how Jesus introduces it. It says, Jesus took bread and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, in other words, this is a symbol. This is a thing that stands in place for something else. Um, I have used this illustration before. You've heard it before. Uh, you've heard it from me before. Some of you have. But if we were driving down, down the highway and we were to see a sign that says Memphis 50 miles, you would not pull over in front of that sign, park it there and say, hey, look, we've made it to Memphis. Because you realize this is a sign and it's pointing us to something that's not Memphis or something that's not this place yet. It's something that's further out. See, the sign points you to the thing that you need to aim for. And Jesus does this with the bread. This bread that we have in front of us, even this morning, is like a road sign pointing us to something other than the bread itself. And so he points to the bread and he says, this is my body. It's a symbol. It's a sign pointing to the real thing. Now, uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes this is the actual, real, physical, literal body of Jesus. They believe this is not symbolic. They believe that this is literal. Uh, that the bread actually becomes the physical body of Jesus, even though it retains the appearance and the form of bread. Of course, one important reason not to think that, among other things, is that as Jesus is sitting here in Matthew 26, 26, and he's speaking to these men and he says to them as he's holding the bread, this is my body. No one around that table would have literally believed they were eating Jesus's physical body. And I can tell you why. It's because they were looking at him across the table and they could see where his body was. And it was not in the bread. And so their immediate knowledge, their immediate understanding of what he was saying as he held that bread and said, this is my body, was this is symbolic. This is symbolic. He's telling me that this bread is like his body. They would have had no other choice than to interpret his words that way. And so with the Lord's Supper, we are talking about a sign that we can see with our eyes. 
And there are signs that you can't see with your eyes. Every word that I am speaking is actually a symbol. We don't think of words that way, but words are symbols. Words are signs. Words communicate deeper truths than the actual sound themselves. So when I say the word hat, your mind does not fixate on the word, but rather you think of a hat. That's a symbol. That's a sign. The Lord's Supper is the same way, except that instead of a word that comes out of a mouth, it's, a, it's something that you can visibly see and touch. That's what a sign is. That's what a symbol is. And so with the Lord's Supper, we're talking about a sign that you can see with your eyes rather than just hear with your ears. But let's go deeper here for a moment, because the way that Jesus expresses these spiritual truths is he uses these two elements. And the first thing that he uses is the element of bread. And the second element he uses is the element of wine. And so let's look a little bit at each of those elements and ask the question, why does Jesus use bread to symbolize his body? Why does Jesus use wine to symbolize his blood? Well, let's look at the bread first. It says in the text, Jesus took bread. There's an intentionality here. He took bread on purpose. He didn't take fish. He didn't take uh, crackers. He didn't take something else that was sitting around the table. He took bread intentionally. Now, bread in the year 2019 has fallen on hard times. Bread has had better days. Uh, People tend to run from bread in all of its forms as much as possible. Uh, You go to Five Guys and they'll sell you a hamburger without a bun. It's a travesty. I've been with my wife. She she loves eating it. It's not a burger. It's just a salad with meat on it. Um, But much of human civilization was formed around the cultivation and preparation of grain so that we could make food out of it. And so people very early on began to realize, hey, look. Bread has sustaining power. Bread can keep us alive. And the great thing about bread is you can take it on a trip and you can eat it and you don't have to prepare it right there. You can take it with you on long journeys. Um, The bread is so basic to life that Jesus told his disciples, he says, when you pray and when you ask God to meet your needs on a daily basis, what's the thing that he says that we should ask him to give us? We should ask him for our daily bread. He uses this word. He says, pray for your daily bread in a sense, because when you do that, you are declaring that it is God keeping you alive each and every day. And so in essence, Jesus is communicating something deeply important. He is saying what bread is to your body, that's what I am to your soul. But there's more to this as well, because this isn't just bread. Do you notice this? This is this is broken bread. This is bread that has to be ruined in order to be of any benefit to us. You can't eat this bread until it's broken. And without a sacrifice, without a death, you have no savior. Without the broken body of Jesus, we're lost. See, broken bread reminds us that the supper isn't just a pleasant meal of nourishment, To eat the broken body of Jesus is to share in his brokenness, to share in his suffering, to share in his affliction and in his weakness. To take this bread, in a sense, is to say the suffering of Jesus is something I take into myself as well. It becomes a part of me. It becomes a part of who I am. And so when we share in his suffering, we also share in what comes from the suffering, which is salvation, which is life itself. 
Now, the other symbolic element in the Lord's Supper is the element of wine. Now, why do I say wine? Why didn't I say grape juice? Preacher, you're going to get yourself in trouble here. Well, the reason I say wine is because that's exactly what was served by Jesus. Wine is exactly what was at the Passover Supper as Jesus would have sat here with his disciples. He would not have poured a glass of grape juice. He would have poured a glass of wine. The reason, in part, is because wine was everywhere in Israel. Uh, It wasn't always safe to drink water, so you would drink wine. Um, And not only that, but just to have grape juice as we know it in the year 2019 would have been nearly impossible. Because the reason is, as soon as you crush a grape, the process of fermentation begins. Fermentation happens when you have a yeast that comes in contact with a sugar. Grapes are actually covered with natural yeasts. That's the way they are when they're on the vine. And so when you take a grape and you you look at it, you actually are looking at something that has natural yeasts on the skin. And then inside of that grape, that grape is, as you know, if you love grapes, they are plum full of delicious sugary juices. And so as soon as that grape is smashed, the natural yeasts that are on those grapes get in there. And they start to eat the sugar that is inside of that grape immediately. And so in no time at all, you have the process of fermentation. Wine is already being made almost as soon as the grape is crushed. And so alcohol is the byproduct. I'm giving you a chemistry lesson. Alcohol is actually the byproduct of those yeasts eating those sugars in the grape. It's almost like God invented wine. In fact, I'm going to read a text to you in a little bit that shows you that God invented wine. But the alcohol that is produced as wine is being made is actually a blessing because it takes a drink that might ordinarily be dangerous, that might even ordinarily make you sick, and it actually kills the contaminants and makes it something that is safe for you to drink, even if it just sits there at room temperature for a really long time. So... Consumed in moderation, wine is good for you, it's healthy, it has all sorts of health benefits. Now, that's sort of the background for this drink. So what I hope you see is that bare grape juice just was not a thing in Israel. Um, You might have grape juice if you immediately drank it, if you crushed it and just immediately drank it. Um, But otherwise, to one degree or another, all grape juice in Israel was wine. And that is the drink that Jesus takes And he presents it to his disciples. And in this moment, he holds up this symbolic drink and he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness forgiveness of sins. So let's talk about wine. Wine is what Jesus gave in the Lord's Supper. And it's clear when Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper being observed in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about wine. And so let's address the elephant in the room. (laughs) In this church and in many churches, uh, grape juice, not wine, is what is used in the Lord's Supper. Now, why? This is a new innovation for the church. Um, Until pasteurization existed, wine was the only option available for the Lord's Supper because it was impossible to store or transport grape juice without it turning into wine. It's like it just wants to show up all the time wherever grapes get smashed. Now, historically, I think you probably know this. Using wine during the Lord's Supper fell out of fashion during Prohibition. It soon became seen as 
uh, in the culture at least, as an ungodly thing for ministers or churches to have alcohol anywhere near them. But for virtually the entire history of the Christian religion, this simply was not so. I think most of the Christian church in history would look at many of our churches today as very strange because we avoid alcohol in the Lord's Supper, because the reality is there is meaning and there is significance in wine. Psalm 104.15 tells us that God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. And so one of the things I think sometimes we miss out on, and, and I'm guilty of this as well, is when we think of the Lord's Supper, we think of it as a mournful thing. We think of it as a sorrowful thing. And no doubt there is a sorrowful aspect to the Lord's Supper. But one of the things wine communicates is that, no, actually, this is also a joyful thing. This is actually something that's meant to give joy to our hearts. It's meant to gladden our hearts. And wine in Scripture is symbolic of joy and celebration and fatness and happiness. That's why Jesus says in verse 29, he won't drink wine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Why? Because that will be a time to celebrate. That will be a time to rejoice. When it's time to celebrate and rejoice again, what is Jesus going to do? He's going to pick up the wine and drink it. But we can be guilty of being so sour and and dour in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. We can forget the the joy that is actually here in this meal. Um, I love grape juice from a very young age. It's been my favorite drink. When I was little, I wouldn't drink orange juice. I didn't even really like apple juice, but I would drink gallons and gallons of grape juice. So uh, I have a long uh, history with grape juice. But I have to say, as much as I love grape juice, it... I would never say that it gladdened my heart. It's just not something that grape juice does, especially if you drink too much of it. Um, so if I could put it bluntly, though, there is something that's signified by wine that isn't symbolized by grape juice, and it's this. Wine is a transformed substance. Um, there is no wine until the fruit is crushed. So think of this now. Uh, the grape has to be crushed. The grape has to die so that we can receive the joy and the gladness that the cup represents. And when we hold the crushed grape, we remember what it took to give us this drink. But you see, wine isn't simply the death of a grape, because in its essence, it is the death and the resurrection of the grape. Because what it becomes when the fermentation is complete is different than what it was before, So after the grapes are crushed, the juice sits there. It has to be put in a dark place, otherwise it becomes bitter and sour. It has to be covered, and so it goes into the darkness. It goes into a covered place. It's closed up, and once it does its work, the yeasts and the sugars work together to produce alcohol, but at the same time, keeping the essence of what was there before. In a sense, it is a resurrection drink. It has the flavor of the grapes. It has the flavor of what it began as, but then there's something new. It died, and it came back different than it was before. There's resurrection symbolized in this drink. You see the grape dies so that something new can come forth. So when we only drink grape juice, I do think there is something that's lost. It's almost as though the death is there, but the resurrection is missing from the symbolism. 
Or maybe I could say another opportunity to symbolize the resurrection is lost. In addition to all of this, wine is a pure drink that contaminants cannot survive in. It is safe to drink. It says something that this drink that Jesus says represents his own blood is incorruptible and destroys contaminants whenever they enter into it. Like the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice is incorruptible. The wine in the Lord's Supper is rich with meaning. And for the sake of brevity, I'm going to leave other things out that we could say that wine represents. But primarily and most importantly... It comes down to the command of Jesus, because in his wisdom, what did he do? He took a cup of wine, fermented, mature fruit of the vine, and he held it up and he said, drink of it, all of you. Well, that creates questions, right? Uh, Maybe you're even thinking of it now. Maybe you're persuaded by what, what I'm saying. Maybe you're persuaded that wine is a fuller testimony of the blood of Christ. Does this mean that we don't have a real sacrament then? Does it, does it follow that we don't have a real sacrament if this isn't fermented? Well, I would like to think we do still have a sacrament here. In fact, I do believe that we still have a sacrament even with grape juice. After all, this is, <clears throat> this is the fruit of the vine. We still have the things that Scripture tells us we should have. We have the words of institution from Jesus. We have the proclamation of the Word of God. We have the gathering of God's people, all of these things are needed, and we do have those things. What I would say is that our practice is the bare minimum of what Jesus commands. And I would suggest that churches that don't offer wine in the supper need to reconsider the practice about whether their practices are based on the text of the Bible or whether they might be inherited cultural traditions. Are we to be guided by the Word of God or are we to be be guided by our traditions. Might it be that we are still so informed by inherited assumptions from the Prohibition era that we assume wine is just too controversial to be included? Or it may be more fundamental. As I understand it, wine's never been served in the Lord's Supper in this church. It may be as simple as this. It's never been presented as even an option for the Lord's Supper. Regardless of whether we miss out on some of the richness of the supper, this is a rich and symbolic meal. But see, in the coming weeks and months, I would love to speak with each of you about this exact message, about this exact question. Are we open to the Reformation motto, Semper Reformata, always reforming? Are we open to being reformed in our practices by the Bible? Are we open to being guided by the text of Scripture in our practices? This supper and the questions that it raises gives us an opportunity to do that. Up until this point, we focused on the symbolism of the bread and we focused a lot on the symbolism of the wine. But even as Jesus uses these elements of bread and wine, he does something else. He points to a true and real spiritual exchange that happens when his people eat the bread and when they drink the wine. And so our second point very briefly this morning is that this meal is also real. In other words, when we take the Lord's Supper, we aren't just enacting a one-sided ceremony where we're merely reminded of what Jesus has done for us. This is not just a memorial. Instead, something actual and real happens to our souls when we truly participate in the Lord's Supper. How do I know this? Well, look at Jesus' language. At the same time he says, this is his body and this is his blood... 
And even as he makes clear that it isn't his actual physical body and blood, he talks as if receiving the elements is as good as if we were receiving the body and blood. See, the symbolism of the Lord's Supper is interesting and it's meaningful, but when we take the Lord's Supper, when we participate in this meal, we get something more than just bread or wine. When we take the supper in faith, we get Jesus. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. See, this meal is something more than a memorial. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so what what Paul is saying is that we aren't making the supper happen. We're not making the supper happen. We aren't doing something inside to sort of coach ourselves to the point that this becomes real. Instead, this is actually a real thing that's done by someone outside of us. That someone is the Spirit. When we take the supper by faith, the Spirit takes Christ who is in heaven. Jesus has a physical body. He is physically in heaven. And he takes Jesus and brings him to us in this meal. He gives the real benefits that are symbolized here to us. So the satisfaction and the forgiveness of Christ's broken body and shed blood, they become real for us. They become ours because we're hungry. Because we need spiritual food. We need him. And when we take the supper, we're nourished. So the Lord's Supper is real. In it, we really are fed by Christ through the Spirit. And finally, I would very briefly say that the Lord's Supper is necessary. This is where we started at the beginning. Of all the needs you have in life, do you consider that having Christ is as necessary as eating and drinking? Do you attach as high of a priority to being spiritually fed as you do to each eating each and every day? We need Jesus. He tells us so. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. He doesn't say, apart from me, you'll be weak. He doesn't say, apart from you, you'll be me, you'll be lonely. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you're dead. That's how much you need this meal set before us today. You need this. I need this. We need this. We as a church can do nothing apart from Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there are riches here. There are depths in the mystery of the supper that we have scarcely even penetrated. We've only scratched the surface of what you've done for us and of what you do for us each time We take this meal and are fed by it. We thank you, O the living bread, for feeding us each and every day. For apart from you, we really, truly, and absolutely are helpless. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the living bread, that we pray. Amen.